Good morning, everyone. Well, we continue this morning working our way through the parables in the Gospel of Luke. And today we come to a parable that I think is so pointed and speaks so shockingly clearly to our culture today that if it wasn't for the agricultural setting in which it is placed, you could almost um, believe that it was written to us right here today. Of all of the parables of Jesus, this one I think is the most difficult for us. Not because it is particularly difficult to understand, there's nothing at all difficult to understand in this parable. It is because we find it so hard to apply, because it runs so counter to the culture of today. Now, this particular parable does come with context, um, and as always, context is a good place to start. So that's where we're going to start today in trying to understand why Jesus is telling this story and, uh, and what it's actually all about. So if you've got your Bibles open, would you um, cast your eyes over the second part of chapter 11? So our parable today comes from chapter 12, but we're going to begin looking at the context in the second half of chapter 11. So Jesus has been eating with the Pharisees and they are more than a little bit shocked that he isn't following the custom of ritual washing before the meal. And in response, Jesus proceeds to pronounce six woes over these Pharisees. Basically, he's calling them out for their hypocrisy in um, paying attention to all these small details and all of their rules and regulations, but actually being quite unclean on the inside. And at the very end of chapter 11, in verses 53 to 54, we see the effect that this has had on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It reads, when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him out in what he might say. And then chapter 12 begins with this linking word, and the word is meanwhile. So while all of this has been happening, while the Pharisees are getting all upset and besieging Jesus with questions and trying to catch him out, Jesus is actually starting to pull quite a crowd. In fact, the opening verse of chapter 12 tells us that a crowd of many thousands had gathered to hear Jesus. In fact, so many were there that they were trampling on one another. And so it's into this melting pot of increasing opposition on one hand and increasing popularity on the other hand um, that Jesus speaks his message. And when he does, which is in the, the first part of chapter 12, he calls his disciples to be bold in their witness. And he assures them that they have nothing to fear, not from those who would oppose him, Neither do they have anything to fear about what they might say when they're dragged in front of the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities. But someone in the crowd isn't interested in such things because he's got other priorities. 
And that's where we're going to turn now as we look at what exactly his other priorities were and how Jesus responded to them. So we're reading Luke chapter 12 from verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. So the crowd here have just been listening to Jesus talking and teaching about spiritual priorities. And for someone in the crowd, that message is not really sinking in because he's far too pro um, preoccupied with earthly priorities. He's got things going on in his family um, that are concerning him. And of particular concern is that he's got an issue with inheritance. So we can safely presume by the fact that he has an issue with inheritance that he is not the oldest son. This must be son number two or three. Because if it was son number one, the oldest son, he would have been the executor of the estate. And he also would have been the primary beneficiary of the estate. Because according to the law of Moses laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 21, the oldest son inherited a double portion, twice as much as the other sons. So younger brother is not happy about this. Oldest is going to be getting the lion's share of the inheritance and it's quite likely that the older brother would try and retain the estate intact as much as he possibly could. And younger brother doesn't think much of this idea because he wants the money to do with as he pleases. And he wants this teacher who speaks with such authority to lend some of that authority to his cause. He wants the teacher to speak on his behalf. Listen to the way he makes his request to Jesus. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He doesn't ask Jesus here to perhaps interpret the law of Moses for him. He doesn't even ask Jesus to provide judgment um, as the rabbis often were asked to step in and intervene in civil cases like this. His words probably sound very familiar to anyone who's got young children. When a squabble breaks out between 
the children. Often a parent is called to intervene, not to settle the dispute, but to settle it in favour of the one who's making the request. So you're like, Mum, Mum, tell so-and-so to share their lollies with me. Mum, tell so-and-so that she can't play with my whatever I've got, whatever toy I've got. He's demanding. He's not asking Jesus to do anything. He's demanding that he intervene and that he do so on his behalf. Now, it may well be that the older brother was abusing his position and cheating the younger one out of what was rightfully due to him. We, we don't know. Perhaps the older brother even wanted to keep the entire estate or inheritance for himself. And a grave injustice may well have been being done. We don't know. All that we know here is that Jesus had other priorities that he felt needed addressing in this particular man's life. So Jesus responds to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And I, I don't know if, if, if you see the great irony in that statement. I, I see a, a huge irony here. On the one hand, here is a man asking Jesus to provide a ruling on some earthly matter. And Jesus is not accredited as an accredited rabbi to provide such a ruling, nor does he want to or have any intention to because that's not why he came to this earth and that's not what he wants for his own ministry. And yet here is this man unknowingly standing before the one who would judge all the earth on the things that matter, not on civil matters, but on spiritual and eternal matters. At the Bema Seat of Christ, all believers will be judged uh, for their works after their salvation, not to determine whether or not they'll receive eternal life, that's, that's secure, but to determine their reward. And at the great white throne of judgment, those who have rejected Christ will be judged to determine the severity of their, their punishment. Watch out, says Jesus. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And could there be a more apt phrase for our culture than those few little words, an abundance of possessions? More than any other culture on earth and more than any other generation that has gone before us, we live in a time characterised by an abundance of possessions. Our homes are coming down with things and yet inevitably we still want more. If you think of the, the frenzy that goes along with the whole Christmas season and the lead up to Christmas... In 2018, 400 million dollars, 400 million dollars was spent by Australians on unwanted gifts. So these are the gifts that are never going to get used by the recipient. They're either going to be thrown out or they're going to be sent to an op shop 
or re-gifted to someone else, $400 million worth. In 2020, Australians spent in total $55 billion on retail sales over the Christmas period. And that's in a year when 43% of us said that we were actually spending less because of COVID. And when it's all over with, the very next day after Christmas, what happens? People line up outside the shopping centres to rush the doors when the Boxing Day sales begin. And they rush for whatever thing it is that they must have that's come on some super special at a supposedly bargain price. Sadly, we live in a society where our self-worth is bound in so many respects to what we possess. We want more and we want bigger and better and we've been deceived into believing that more and bigger and better will make us feel better because we'll be happy or because if we don't get it, we'll feel like we're being left behind. And Christians are not immune from this type of thinking. In fact, we have our very own special brand of preachers, false teachers who've convinced many Christians that material prosperity is actually what God has for their life, what he wants for their life, and that anything less is indicative of a lack of faith. If that were the case, why is it that so many greats of the Bible were neither wealthy nor comfortable in their lives? John the Baptist lived in the desert eating locusts and honey. John was exiled on a remote island. Paul was jailed. Jesus lived simply as the son of a carpenter before ultimately he was executed. As Jesus said, life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. And so he begins to illustrate his point with this parable. There's a man and he describes him as a rich man. He owns land and that land has produced for him a bumper crop. And in the culture of the day, one whose well-being or otherwise was tied up with agriculture and how well the, the crops um, did each season, a bumper crop was seen as evidence of God's blessing in one's life. So here is a man who would have been perceived by all who knew him as having been abundantly blessed by God because of this crop that his land has produced. And what is his first reaction to that blessing? He doesn't stop to praise God for that abundant blessing. He doesn't stop to thank God for have, having been given more than he could have ever hoped for. He doesn't stop to think, how can I ensure that some of my excess goes to those who might have need? His first thought is, how can I make sure I hold on to all of this for myself? And he sees that his existing barns are not big enough. And so his first thought is to knock them down and build some bigger barns so that he can house 
his great wealth. Now, this is where the story sort of starts to cut very close to home. Because, okay, none of us or none of you that I know of are producing grains at the moment as your primary means of income. But if we were to substitute grains or crops with the word profit or wealth or income, then maybe this starts to really cut close to home. Here's a man who's made a profit far in abundance of his needs. And his first thought is, what can I do to hold on to all of it? And we have to ask ourselves, what is our first thought when we produce an abundance far more than what we need for ourselves? His problem here is not that he's rich. His problem here is not that his land has produced in abundance. His first problem here is his attitude. It's selfishness. He wants to hold tightly to that which God has blessed him with. His next problem comes in his motivation. Now, there could be plenty of good reasons for building bigger barns. Or if you translate it to our language of today, for of investing what you have or keeping it safe. With bigger barns, he might be able to store up more to protect his family and friends in the lean years. Now, when you live in an agricultural society, there are going to be some years when you produce nothing. And so bigger barns might allow him to insure against that for his family and for his friends. With bigger barns, he could store the crop to sell it when that crop was scarce and he could earn a higher price for it. And that might be wise use of that crop because then he would have a greater profit and he could use that profit perhaps to help others with his excess. But these are not the motivations of this man. Jesus is very careful to explain what is motivating him to build his bigger barns. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. This is a man who truly believes that his future will be better if he has more things. For him, the good life involves sitting around, taking life easy and enjoying himself. And if we're honest, has any one of us not ever had that thought? Isn't that what so much of the retirement advertising is all about? About building up, building up so that when you finally retire, you can do whatever you want. Go wherever you want. Live however you want. To have accumulated so much that we'll have plenty of good things laid up for many years. So we can take life easy, enjoy ourselves, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, don't get me wrong here. And don't misunderstand the point of the parable. Jesus is not saying here that it is wrong to enjoy what we have. In fact, in other places in the Bible, we're told that it is good to enjoy what we've been blessed with. 
He's not saying that we should never go on a holiday. He's not saying that we should never throw a party or that we should never take it easy and rest from time to time. What he is saying is that when self-indulgent pleasure becomes our motivating life goal, then we've missed the point of life entirely. When that happens, we have allowed our gaze to fall from the things of heaven or the things of the kingdom of God down to the things of earth. The kingdom of heaven is no longer our primary focus. And Jesus is scathing in his rebuke. You fool, he says, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Now, if you can think back um, earlier in the year when we were working our way through the Old Testament literature, you'll remember that the term fool came up many times. It's used many times in the book of Proverbs and there it's usually held in contrast with the wise. There's the wise and there's the foolish or there's wisdom and there's folly or foolishness. And today we think of a fool who's maybe someone who's a bit of a practical joker or someone who's a bit silly or maybe even someone who's not quite so intelligent. But in the scriptures, the fool is always held in contrast to the wise. We're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Therefore, by implication, the fool is one who does not fear the Lord. This man is a fool because he doesn't fear the Lord. In fact, he's lived his life as though there were no God. If you cast your eyes back over that parable and work your way through it and make note of all the times I and my is mentioned, and even you when he's talking to himself, this is a key feature of the parable. It happens about 11 times across the short space of those few verses. He has no fear of the Lord. God isn't part of his decision-making process. He's living his life apart from God. And all of his life is revolving around himself. Now, no doubt, his great wealth and his land ownership brought with it a certain sense of power. Power on earth. No doubt, in the eyes of his peers, he was a very successful man. But in the kingdom of God, he's described as a fool. This very night, says God, your life will be demanded of you and then who will get all that you've prepared for yourself. This man is a fool because he thought that he was in control. And his wealth probably heightened that feeling. With money, he could make plans and know for certain. So he thought what his future was going to be like. With money, he had no need to depend on God. And that's a very dangerous situation to be in. You have to be very careful if you find yourself in that situation. With one swift statement from God, he learned just how little control he actually had. You fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. This man is a fool 
because he prioritised his body over his soul. He fattened his body with good food and wine, while at the same time he starved his soul. Perhaps he reflected the attitude of so many today who are busy enjoying themselves. Later, later I'll have time for God. Later when I finish studying and I'm not so busy, then I'll have time for God. Later when I've traveled and got all of that out of my system, then I'll settle down and have time for God. Later, when my family have grown up and the house is empty and I'm not running around doing all these things with the kids, then I'll have time for God. Later, when I've retired, then I'll have plenty of time for God. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. No one knows the time or the place. This man is also a fool because he invested all that he had in the here and now rather than in eternity. Nothing he had could be taken with him on that fateful night when his life was demanded from him. Death would do to him what it does to all of us. It reveals us for who we are. And in his case, a man who had stored up things for himself but was not rich towards God. All that he'd accumulated and all that we've accumulated will be left to someone else. And they may well use it wisely or they may not. They may squander the lot. Only really that which we've given away will have any bearing on eternity for us. And in that respect, he was not only a fool, but he was a pauper. The Apostle Paul instructed the younger Timothy with regard to those who had wealth in this present age. He said, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This life here is not the life that is truly life. So, that he was wealthy was not this man's problem. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that riches are evil. Being wealthy doesn't make him a fool any more than being a pauper makes someone rich towards God. Whether you're dealing with millions or just a few pennies and coins, what matters in the kingdom of God is not so much how, you, how much you have, but how tightly you hold on to it and how tightly you allow it to hold on to you. What matters is where your priorities lie. When earthly success or our own enjoyment or comfort become our primary objective in life, regardless of whether we consider ourselves wealthy or not, then we can be sure that it is not God, with a big G, God, that we are worshipping, but it's God with a little G. We've 
begun worshipping an idol. I'm going to finish today with a, a story about this guy here that kind of captured my imagination as a good illustration of the point that Jesus is trying to make here today. I'm not sure if anyone would recognise this man. His name is Yusuf Ismail. And he was a Turkish professional wrestler in the 1800s. He earned himself the nickname the Terrible Turk. Uh, he was six foot two inches, he was 138 kilograms, and he was pretty much a ball of muscle. And his brute strength was des described by his opponents as like a modern Hercules who knew how to apply his punishing strength. Now, in 1898, the Turk was undefeated and his manager organised a tour of the United States where he would eventually defeat Evan Strangler Lewis for the American Heavyweight Championship. And Ismail requested that the prize money be converted to gold. And he refused to part with that gold, ensuring that he couldn't part with it by strapping it around his waist. And he wore it like that day and night for the long voyage home, which of course in those days was by boat, so it took a long time to get back to Europe from America. Now I'm guessing that you can probably imagine how this story's gonna go if you've got gold bullion strapped around your waist and you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. The ship sailed into a storm the ship began to get into trouble. They began to lower the lifeboats as the ship was sinking. And the passengers began clambering over one another to get to the lifeboats. Somehow, in the midst of it all, Ismail ended up in the water. There's all sorts of reports as to how he ended up in the water. Some suggest he just fell overboard in the crush. Others say that he jumped and missed the boat. And still others say that he jumped and upended everyone in the boat with him into the water. Whatever happened, in spite of reportedly being a very good swimmer, Ismail sank straight to the bottom of the ocean, weighed down by the great wealth which he had strapped around his waist that he refused to part with or remove even when it was slowly killing him. He died in his prime at the age of 40. Literally, he drowned in his riches. Now, when we allow the pursuit of wealth or comfort or pleasure to become the focus of our time and energy, when we hold tightly to those things, they become for us like Ismail's belt because they weigh us down and anchor us to the things of the earth and that which we worked so hard for eventually ends up doing us eternal harm. Corrie ten Boom advises us to hold loosely to the things of this life so that if God requires them of you it will be easy to let them go and of course if God should require you from the earth 
What a joy will await you, each one who has stored their treasures in heaven, not on earth. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that everything that we have comes from you. Help us to see it for what it is and to hold onto it lightly. Grant us the wisdom to be good overseers of that which you have entrusted to our care. Would you show us how best to use what little or what abundance we have? Help us to live life with eternity on our minds and show us how to invest in your kingdom for your name's sake. Amen.